0: This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen
1: Confession Podcast with Chef Mary Mammoliti.
0: Some say that cooking is an art, but baking is a science. We've spoken with many avid bakers on Kitchen Confession, and we've learned a lot from them. Speaking as a purely functional sweet tooth baker myself so we've compiled some of their best advice to share with you to help step up your baking game. Jana Bishop is a co-founder of the popular mill and bakery, Flowerist in Vancouver. Their fresh flowers feature a connection with the agriculture community and offer bakers high-quality ingredients and unique flavors to cook with. What makes your mill so different from others?
2: Mill is absolutely the the cornerstone in it. And it helps us really differentiate what you can buy from us and what's available everywhere. Um, Stone milling is is something that has been done for hundreds and hundreds of years all over the world in different ways. So the mill crashes the grain. It incorporates all of the elements, even the elements that eventually will make the product perishable. So what that is, is the oil, the germ, everything that, makes flour so special magical digestible <laughs> flavorful we keep it in there and most flour needs to remove that because it is it is that uh, that element of grain that that goes bad so stone milling preserves that we incorporate that throughout throughout the flour we either sift off the largest element the largest particles of bran to create a sifted product more like a white flour although it's nothing like white flour <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or or we leave it completely whole grain and we get to you know, taste the full magic, experience the full health benefits that come in each kernel of grain. We start with our really basic ones, uh, which is our red spring. Canada is known for its bread flour. It's a very high performance wheat. It makes amazing bread. It's what we use to make all of our bread in the bakery. And it probably, although you'd never know, makes up the bulk of what would be in all-purpose flour found on the shelves right now. Although it's probably a blend of multiple grains and there's no traceability into what those are um it's just Mm -hmm. it's just all-purpose flour (laughs) um so right okay so we start with sifted we start with our red spring offered in both sifted and whole grain varieties that's probably our best seller um and then we have red fife and red fife is a very ancient grain um that kind of fell out of use with the development and the modernization of red spring But red fife is really different. It's not as high performance for bread baking, but it makes beautiful cookies and cakes and pancakes and muffins and all those things that kind of make up the backbone of anyone baking with kids or doing any sort of just sort of family baking. Yeah, or bakes like myself because I have a sweet tooth. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I compare that to an to a typical all-purpose. So red spring would be our bread flour or our bread wheat and red fife is more of the the all purpose. It's more forgiving too. You know, if you're making a batch of muffins, the red spring, even if you give it one extra mix, one extra turn of the spoon, those muffins are going to be bricks because that gluten is highly reactive and wants to be bread, whereas red fife is more forgiving. So you can just let that go a bit. And then um, also offered and sifted in whole grain. And then we get into more of the, the specialty wheat. So we've got spelt, einkorn, rye. We have um, a new grain to us, which is marquee, which is a it was a very popular milling and bread baking wheat in the early 1900s. It won awards. It was Developed um, at a university in Saskatchewan, Um, and then again it kind of fell out of favor as more modern wheats were developed. But we're really loving Marquis for bread baking as a as an alternative to Red Spring, Um, and then we have our Durham, uh, which we mill into as close as we can get to a double O for pasta making. Um, Yeah, I think that captures the full flour assortment. And then you know, Einkorn might not be familiar to many. It's a the oldest variety of wheat that they can really track back all the way, hundreds and hundreds of years. The very, I think it's the very first wheat that was ever cultivated, and it's an incredibly soft wheat. It doesn't. It's not easy to make bread with at all. We don't offer it in a sifted variety because the brand just mills down into this beautiful powder. Um, you don't need to. You don't need to sift it at all. The whole grain version is perfect. It's incredibly nutty. We use it at the bakery in cookies um, and a beautiful gâteau basque or cookie tarts it just the flavors are just amazing um we have we have made bread with it and when einkorn is fermented it has almost like a takes on almost like a mushroomy quality it's very savory very good with charcuterie really? or cheese yeah it's fascinating very surprising um when you ferment uh, the einkorn bread
0: i'm really curious about the different flavors of it i mean does it add or enhance any of the other ingredients that you're adding into these so for example if you're using you mentioned that the einkorn has a a nutty flavor to it do the others are they very neutral or do they all have their own very distinct flavoring
2: you know there's a difference too between fermenting the grain You, you will get a different profile than if you say mix it with butter like in a pastry um spelt for example is quite bright it blends like a like you don't want to go so far as citrusy, but it does have a brightness to it compared to the the nuttiness of einkorn. Red fife is quite nutty. Rye is actually quite spicy, I would say. Like when we mill rye and it comes right off the, the mill, it smells like cinnamon. It has like a very aromatic quality and it pairs so well with chocolate and those like yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful That's grain. So, so, <laughs> so yeah, they definitely do. And red spring can have, you know, people don't really like the, to think of it as bitter, but it does have this like very sort of sharpness to it, which works beautifully in bread, but they all do have their own character for sure.
0: And again, we're not standing there. We're not tasting the, the flowers on their own. They're just mixing in with the ingredients, which you get that little hint of it. I love it because it adds to every recipe. So it adds a little layer, another layer to every recipe.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, your baking takes on a whole other element, um, especially when you compare it to to you know commercially produced flowers, where you just you know you can't really identify any flavor in that flour. It's very much just a medium for flavor.
0: Steve Hodge is a renowned pastry chef and master chocolatier, owner of Temper Chocolate and Pastry in Vancouver, and the co-host of Project Bakeover on Food Network.
3: I learned from a baker in England at a restaurant called The Woolsey. He was a master baker. I got to work with him for about four months. I was on the baking section, then he went off to um, work for the Rue Brothers. And then they brought in another baker, and I got to learn off of him. But there's something I just love about um, laminating dough, and it can change every single day. One day it can be perfect, the next day it could go to... Bleep bleep bleep. But Mm -hmm. um it's understanding uh temperature control when you're when you're working with croissants, you know, is how cold your butter to your dough, uh the resting times. And um, you know, working on that. Our our croissant at Temper when we first opened before we opened it, I was in a test kitchen testing what I was gonna bring to the menu. And um, I think we did, I think it was 28 doughs I had tested before I nailed the croissant, and it was amazing. Even down to because I love the science side of food and understanding why things work. Like even down to if this dough is proofed two minutes longer than it should, why is the bo- why is the butter leaking out? And then we'd look at that and we'd be like, okay, well, what's our percentage of butter in the dough? And if we can bring it down a percent or half of a percent, will that affect it? And and we still today work our our croissant evolves every day in the sense that you know. If it's because it rains in Vancouver all the time, uh, understanding okay, how do we adjust the proofers? You know, funny thing, talking about menus and um, you know, how do you how do you decide what you're going to put on your menu? How you're going to change it? The pandemic obviously affected everyone worldwide in the businesses. In one sense, the pandemic was a great thing that it made you change the strategy on how you run your business. And for us, what it did, and it was an eye opener. Was We had a customer because we lost all of our seating inside. We were a grab-and-go place. We became an essential place. And we had a customer come in and said, oh, do you sell frozen croissants? I I would would like to bake croissants at home because I'm not leaving my house. And we're like, well, no, we don't. And we never even thought about that. Um, But we're like, "Okay, here's some croissants. And we're like, well, how do you do it? And of course, I'm there. I'm like, just 30-minute speech on how to proof and blah, 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 blah. Anyways, they took them home. And they did them. And they came in about a week later and they showed a picture of them. And I was like, Wow, those look better than our croissants we make in our shop. <laughs> and then, you know, they tell a friend, a friend tells a friend, and before you know it, people are coming in and they're ordering frozen croissants. So we had to sit back and think, okay, we need to readjust our menu. Because one, we had 262 SKUs in our shop from Our confections on the retail to what was in the showcase and all the little bits and pieces, and but because we weren't as busy, we dropped our menu thirty percent. We got rid of all the things that we weren't we didn't need to focus on anymore, and we just focused on what was popular. But we wrote a we wrote now wrote a frozen side to our menu. You can come in and get frozen croissants. You can get frozen scones, where we would make our scones fresh every single day. Well, now we're building up scone production. To freeze to sell, and I was so interested in the sense that these customers were bringing in pictures of the croissants that they made at home. I was like, "Why are they? Why do they look so good?" So I started bringing croissants home and proofing them in my house and baking them just to test. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was, wow, here we are in a professional kitchen. We have a professional proofer where we're um, we're pumping in heat and moisture right we're forcing a croissant to proof unnatural to fire the yeast and the sugar and everything in there so we can bake get it out of the shop and do it and they were and they're still good but what i realized was when you proof a dough in a natural state with the natural environment and you allow it to slowly proof uh, you allow it to proof slowly over time and in the kitchen, it's not efficient. You can't do that because it's, it's too much time. Your end result is actually better. We're not forcing something. We're At home, they're naturally allowing that to happen. And so with that, it was like, these are little things that you don't think about until something big happens, like the pandemic. And it just changed a lot of how we looked at things in our pastry shop. And I thought that that was, you know, we would have never seen that if this never happened.
0: I'm Mary Mammalidi, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, we're sharing our best advice from world class bakers. The award winning pastry chef and Food Network star, Anna Olson, is also fondly known as Canada's baking sweetheart. With more than 10 published cookbooks and countless TV credits, she has become one of the country's most recognizable chefs. We actually put this out there um, on social to ask any baking questions they had. I was not expecting the whole slew. I was inundated with questions. So I have a couple from our, our listeners. Yes, yeah, sure. If you feel a recipe calls for too much sugar, is it okay to cut the measurement in half?
4: Ooh, that's a very good question. Now, sugar in uh, baked goods does more than just sweeten. It adds moisture and structure. So it depends on the recipe. You may find that if you are reducing sugar... Um, in cakes, cookies, muffins, quick breads, that they may become a little more dry or crumbly, so you have to compensate and that a little more liquid, um, because sugar, when it heats, of course, liquefies, and then it binds with all the other ingredients in your batter to make that baked good set. Um, so you have to add a little more liquid. If it's anything with whipped egg whites, um, a sponge cake, a meringue you can't reduce the sugar, you will change the structure of the meringue, the sugar adds stability to the egg whites. So that's a no. But if it is if you're looking to reduce sugar, um, just to simply reduce sugar, or if um, you're counting on the glycemic index to replace with coconut palm sugar, uh, is an excellent addition because it is not quite as sweet tasting. You use it in a one-to-one ratio replacement for granulated sugar, uh, and it registers half on the glycemic index as granulated sugar. So you can you can whip your meringues and use it in your batter in the same measure, and you'll find it's not as sweet tasting, and then you've also got the benefits of the lower glycemic number.
0: I always overbeat my whipped cream. Is there a way to fix it?
4: Ah, uh, Oh, there sure is. That's another great question. I have to say, Mary, all of these questions are wonderful. So thanks to everyone who's listening. But yes, so you thought you were a pioneer and you're making butter? Is you <laughs> over with your whipped cream? Um, <laughs> there is a way to fix it, and what I tend to do, and if you if you do this if you do this often, and especially if you only buy um, your small carton, your two fifty mil or five hundred mil of cream, don't whip don't pour the whole container in when you first start whipping hold a tablespoon back because if you do accidentally whip your cream what you do is shut off the mixer add that remaining tablespoon or two of fluid cream and then just by hand gently whisk it in and adding the unwhipped fat will break down the over whipped fat so then it will go back to the point you missed the first time around but the key is don't use the beaters after that. Once you add the cream, you just kind of whisk it in by hand and you'll see it just sort of drop down a little bit.
0: Oh, that's brilliant.
4: And if I can offer a free with purchase tip on that whipped cream note, uh-huh. if you want to stabilize your whipped cream, so, you know, holiday season is around the corner and maybe you're going to have your gingerbread cake and you want to whip the, your whipped cream to have ahead of time, or maybe it's to put on top of your trifle or whatever you're making. But you notice if you whip your cream and put it in the fridge, within a few hours, it starts separating. Because the fat can only hold that air in for so long. Um, And then the sugar kind of pulls down and pulls to the bottom. You can re-whip it at that point. But if you add one tablespoon of instant skim milk powder uh, to every one cup of fluid cream you whip, you can add it at any point in the whipping process. You have to use the instant because it dissolves into the cream. Uh, Skim milk powder is pure protein. That binds the cream and it will hold the air in. So then you can whip your cream ahead of time. You can spread it on top of a cake and it will hold for 24 hours. You'll get clean slices. It doesn't change the flavor or texture of the cream at all. So that's one tablespoon of instant skim milk powder to every one cup of fluid cream that you whip.
0: What is the secret to the perfect chocolate chip cookie? How can we weed through the endless recipes for the best chocolate chip cookies?
4: Well, now that's a bit of a plant of a question. <laughs> Do I owe you a $5 tip for that one? Because of course I'm going to send you to mine. I've worked on my chocolate chip cookie for years. So I would love uh, the person who wrote that question to give mine a try. And they they don't have to be sold on it. It's okay. <laughs> um, but I, I like it because my little uh, tip there is I add a, a little bit of cornstarch to the dry ingredients, when I when I mix the dry ingredients into the cookie batter. Um, and I came up with that idea based on pavlova. Pavlova is a meringue, because I was making the two the same time when I was in the kitchen. Pavlova is a meringue dessert um, that you put cream and fruit on. And the only difference between a pavlova and a meringue, so a pavlova has crispy on the outside and then it's soft and marshmallowy in the center where a regular meringue is crispy all the way through. The only difference in ingredients between those two styles is the addition of cornstarch because cornstarch holds moisture to it. Um, It's hygroscopic is the term. And so I thought, well, now what if we put that in our cookies? Will that make the center of the cookies nice and chewy and we get it crispy outside? And I found it did. It really made a big difference. It also slightly lowers the protein content because it's a starch, um, of your flour, so then you get a more tender cookie at the same time. And then, my last little trick something I don't think it's starting to show up in my newer recipes um, when it comes to things like a chocolate chip or an oatmeal cookie, when you pull your tray out of the oven, give the tray a smack and it collapses the cookie, so it makes the center really dense and that helps keep it chewy in the center, too. And I'm presuming the reader would like a cookie that's a bit crispy on the outside, but nice and chewy in the center. Some people like fully crisp
0: really? chocolate chip cookies. I was gonna say, is there any other way to have that?
4: Yeah, get give my recipe a try, and then, but from there, you'll you'll when you look at chocolate chip cookie recipes, there's very little variance. Um, it's really nuances, temperature of the baking, chill the dough or not chill the dough, um, that really set it apart. So I would, yeah, I would say mine has the cornstarch and the the trace smacking is as real perks and i do like to i do find your cookies are better if you scoop them and chill them um which normally like there are only two of us so if i'm just making a batch of cookies i'll make a full batch i'll scoop them all and then i i just bake off half a dozen and then the rest i just chill or freeze you chill them first and then you can just pack them in a container and pull them out when you need them and they are better once they've had a chance to chill
0: Smith is the mom of three, a cookbook author, and she chronicles her gluten-free lifestyle on her blog, Mary's Whole Life. I'm curious about this, so what food products would you consider like an absolutely indispensable for proper gluten-free baking, maybe cooking?
5: Yeah, I have so many pantry staples, um, definitely the maple syrup, honey, almond flour, coconut flour. Um, if you're not following paleo, then just a really good gluten-free flour. I like um, King, right. King Arthur makes some amazing gluten-free products like pancakes, cake mixes that truly taste like the real thing. Um, coconut oil, olive oil. I have all of those on hand so I can make you know, a batch of muffins at any point.
0: What's been your biggest challenge converting to like a gluten-free lifestyle?
5: Well, in the beginning, I literally thought my life was over. I am, I'm such a food lover. I'm such a carb lover. Pasta is my love language. And I thought, you know, if I can't just have a big bowl of noodles with butter and Parmesan ever again, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what is life? (laughs) So um, that was my attitude in the beginning. But then I decided to flip the switch and say, you know what, I'm going to figure out a way to still enjoy my life and make things delicious. And that was kind of what got me uh, started getting into the kitchen and experimenting and, you know, using these new grain-free, gluten-free cookbooks and things like that. Um, And it really sparked my interest in cooking that honestly, I never really had before.
0: Okay. So you tapped onto cookbooks. So I was going to ask, what resources would you recommend for someone that, um, you know, might be just starting out on their gluten-free journey?
5: I feel like there's so many more resources now compared to like ten years ago. Um, So many great cookbooks out there. One of my biggest inspirations is Danielle Walker from Against All Grain. I love all of her cookbooks. Really, those were the main resources I used from her in the beginning. Um, And then I would go online and look at different blogs. And there are are there any gluten free products that you'd love? Some of your faves. Oh yes, Um, Jovial gluten free pasta uh, has been a savior for me. It literally has the same. Very similar taste and texture to regular pasta. So I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. Canyon Bakehouse gluten-free bread. I have that a few times a week. It's really great, especially when you toast it up or fry it up for a grilled cheese. Um, Siete, love all of their products. And I love the story behind their family. Um, The mom had an autoimmune disease. So they started this company and made all these products like gluten-free tortillas, grain-free chips and all that um, so that she could still enjoy things, but manage her disease at the same time. And I, I use their tortillas for breakfast tacos, probably five times a week.
0: And when we're talking about celiac disease, it's, it's serious. You don't want any cross-contamination. So especially in your kitchen. So how do you ensure that there's no cross-contamination in your kitchen and does your family, they, do they follow the same diet as you do?
5: So, my husband and my kids do not eat 100% gluten free. Um, You know, they eat most of the meals that I cook here. And we do everything in our power to make sure that we are not cross contaminating me. You know, I make my sandwiches in a separate area of the counter. I toast my bread in the oven under the broiler versus using the toaster that they use. Um, And, you know, some people with celiac choose to convert their households to hundred percent gluten-free we haven't quite done that yet um you know i i don't share the same cookware i have a separate pan for their grilled cheeses versus what we use for everything else so i would say we're probably 80 percent um gluten-free here but then in terms of like their school lunches and stuff they take regular sandwiches and all that so um we do our best and so far it's gone okay
0: how easily do children adapt to a gluten-free lifestyle and are there any tips that you would recommend for this transition
5: First of all, I will say that my heart goes out to anybody who is dealing with this just because obviously when you're a kid, you know, you have the birthday parties, you have school stuff, you have different events and things throughout your life where food is a big part of it. And I, I'm just thankful that I didn't really have to start dealing with this until I was later in life, you know, and kind of in charge of my day to day schedules and meals. I I it must be so difficult um to deal with that when you have a child because some things you know you're not always there to control those situations. So I think um you know some of my best recommendations are the good thing is there's so many products out there now that are great dupes for you know pizza and pasta and you know it might take a little extra effort to pack you know a frozen pizza to bring to your friend's birthday party or things like that but just really making sure that your friends and family and community are aware and take it seriously and you know I think Once they have that explanation and and realize that it's something they really, really need to be paying attention to, that most people will be on board with it.
0: The owner and chief baker at Cake Mama, Isabella DePaz's passion for baking and love of food is in every dish and cookie she creates. She's all about creating delicious vegan baked goods and savory dishes. But there's a spin to your business. Because although you do bake, yes, your baked goods are all vegan. Girl, vegan.
1: Yes, yes. yes. So um, that is a very recent—not uh, recent. I guess it's in the last like probably four years now. Um, my family and I decided that we were going to shift our uh, our lifestyle to a vegan lifestyle. I thought, oh my gosh, like what am I going to do? I've been doing, you know, I've been baking all of these things um, in the traditional way with, you know, with eggs and dairy and that kind of thing. And I was like, what do I do? Like, I literally had to basically like stop the business for a few months, like basically take a break to kind of go, okay, now I need to reformulate recipes. And like, have them be good enough to stand behind them and say, well, yeah, these are just as good as the ones I used to make. So, you know, don't not order from me anymore because, mm-hmm. because I'm vegan. It was a very scary move. I thought, you know what, this is, this could really make or break my business. But at the times, so this is like in 2017, you know, the, the plant-based movement or the vegan movement, if you will, was really starting to become a bit more popular, a bit more mm-hmm. mainstream. Um, and so the accessibility was a challenge. So I was like discovering that there was like this niche of people that were like, oh my God, like, yeah, we want, cakes for special occasions. We want cookies and all these kinds of things, but there's no one that makes them. And then I was like, okay, well, this is kind of where I fit in. So the vegan thing actually kind of worked out in two ways because now I just sort of separated myself from people who don't do what I do, but still do what I do, if that makes sense. And it wasn't going
0: anywhere, like becoming vegan. It wasn't going away. It wasn't like it was a fad. It was going, this was becoming part of life and more and more people were discovering it. So you were onto something very,
1: very early in the game. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, this is, I mean, that's all I do now. So I've been doing it for four years and it's still busy and it's still, you know, and it's, and what's so fascinating about that is that a lot of people who order from me actually aren't even vegan themselves. They just go, you know what, we really love your work. Um, You know, we've heard about your work. We've, or or we've tried it, you know, from uh, somebody else's party or what have you. And now we want to order it. So it's kind of, it's a kind of neat experience because, you know, it may seem like I'm super niched, which, you know, when you look at it, I am, um, you know, when people look at the work, like if you go on my website or if you go on my Instagram, you'll please right? go like into go, her
0: website and Instagram. Yeah.
1: You will <laughs> <Yeah>. rule. <drool. laughs> Thank you so much. So you'll see it and you'll kind of go, what's the difference? You don't really see the difference. It's not like it's, it's still a beautifully decorated cake or a beautifully decorated cookie. It's just that the ingredients are different. Right. Mm -hmm. And the flavors are all there. The flavors are all there. And on top of that too, like I have always tried to market myself or make it known that like, I am by no means health food. I'm not a health food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The cake mama's products are not a health food. They are just as (laughs) indulgent as, you know, the ice cream cake you would buy at a store or a cake you'd buy at the store or, you know, it's just as, and that's intended to be that way. Right. When we celebrate things, uh, we, we get a little bit, you know, fancier with our food, you get a little bit more indulgent. And so that's no different. Whereas I kind of feel like people fear that when it's vegan, they're going, Oh, no, so that means it's like refined sugar free, or like, you know, it's gluten free, or there's like, there's a lot of gluten in my food. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's, it's, you know, you take a slice and it's satisfying, it satisfies that sweet tooth, it, it, it is no different other than, you know, the absence of eggs and the absence of butter.
0: Okay, so now now that we're on this absence of eggs and absence of butter, because I have to, I have to ask you this. You made a mm-hmm. vegan pavlova. I did. How? What did you use to create like that crispy, delicious crust with no egg or no egg whites?
1: I Pretty fascinating, right? Yeah. So, so the egg substitute that is kind of like the holy grail of vegan baking is a product called aquafaba, which is actually the liquid that you find in a can of chickpeas. So that liquid, because it's been sitting sitting with, um, the chickpeas, it draws out the proteins that are very similar to like the structure of an egg, like the egg proteins, uh, in egg whites, I should say. So if you whip that up, it becomes a beautiful meringue, a very beautiful meringue. So, I mean, that's the basis of my royal icing. When I make royal icing, instead of using a meringue powder or using egg whites, I'll use that. If you're going to do an angel food cake that needs like a lot of that air. You would be using the aquafaba. So then for the pavlova, for example, you would be using that. But you do have to add a few stabilizers to it so that it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily deflate and that's the beauty of it because you know how, if you whip eggs for a certain you know, egg whites, for a certain period of time, if you overmix it, you can actually break the structure and it just becomes a mm-hmm. soggy mess. Um, with aquafaba, it doesn't do that. However, it stays light and airy and doesn't have that structure that like heavy structure, a thick structure, I should say that egg whites do. So it gets very light and airy. So you add a little bit of cream of tartar for stabilization. And if you want to get real fancy, you can also go, get into the gums, like you can add a little bit of xanthan gum or guar gum, and that kind of gives it the elasticity that, um, that egg whites have that aquafaba does not. They're not necessarily necessary. It's just dependent on whether or not you want it to like hold its shape. So for example, like I've done meringues where I pipe them using a piping bag and it's, you know, a beautiful swirl. So if you want that kind of, um, sturdiness to it, then you add the gums. But otherwise, if you're just doing a pavlova, it's literally granulated sugar and the aquafaba, you whip it up, you plop it onto a, 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 cookie sheet with a parchment on there. And actually what the beauty of using aquafaba is that you can actually use a food dehydrator, which is what I use. Um, so I don't use my oven to bake it. I'll just put it in a food dehydrator because you're not concerned about the, um, the salmonella, right? So, cause eggs, I believe have to be cooked above 180 degrees. Um, and aquafaba does not have that, uh, that issue. So you can cook it, you can actually, and it's nice because then you don't have to worry about it over Browning because most dehydrators only get up to like 170 ish degrees. So you can kind of set it and forget it. And then you have this beautiful pavlova that you can top with fresh fruit
0: and whipped coconut cream and so smart. Yeah, Yeah. it's pretty awesome. It's that time we've reached the end of another show. Did we get your stomach growling? Head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchen confession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mammolini. Thanks for listening.